Come buy our orchard fruits. Come buy, come buy. Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom down cheeked peaches, sword headed mulberries, wild freeborn cranberries, crab apples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather. Yeah, but like, are they organic? You're listening to Outside of a Dog where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas Hawk. And I'm Christian Schneider. Hello. This week, we're returning to our roots. For the first time since our very first inaugural episode, we're discussing a poem. This time, Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Goblin Market was written in 1859 and finally published in 1862. It's quite a long poem. It's actually a narrative poem, kind of telling a story. And Rossetti has gone on record saying that it is basically a poem for children, a kind of fairy tale. Although many people since then have had their doubts because, let's say, Goblin Market can be analyzed and interpreted in various, often not very childlike ways. And apparently, in a letter to a publisher, Rossetti admitted as much. This is not a poem for children. Uh, what do you mean? How can things like, then sucked their fruit globes fair or red? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore. How could that ever be inappropriate for children? Please, we're talking about the Victorians here, so I'm sure there's nothing untoward regarding that poem. Michel Foucault is spinning in his grave right now. Rossetti grew up in an artistic family. She was taught at home by her parents, which gave her certainly more educational opportunities than a lot of other women had at her time. Her brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, of course also a poet and artist, and she started writing poetry when she was 12. She wrote Goblin Market at age 29, and then she started publishing her poems in her early 30s to great acclaim. She was considered one of the greatest poets of her time, uh, certainly one of the greatest female poets, though that is always somewhat diminishing. She was considered a great poet, period. She was at least associated with the pre-Raphaelite movement. Her brother, Dante, was one of the main founders of that movement. A Victorian offspring that was kind of nostalgic about medieval times, a more fantastic version of medieval times, maybe, with lots of Christian-influenced symbolism and rather about passion and emotions than about strict moral values. And I think that comes across in the poem as well. Now, where exactly do we draw the line between the pre-Raphaelites and romantics? Because the pre-Raphaelites were a sort of closed group. You can pretty easily identify who's a member of that group and who is not. There are certainly the romantics as well, but it's a broader, more international movement. But basically the two are very similar, except that I think the pre-Raphaelites are even stupider than the Romantics. I actually like the pre-Raphaelites for their kind of stupidity. They are much more mannerist than the Romantics. The Romantics were more about the kind of natural passion, whereas the pre-Raphaelites in the pictorial arts as well as in literature were more about style. In a sense, they prefigure one of your great heroes, Oscar Wilde, the sense of art for art's sake. Yes, but he was not as ludicrous as they were. And also, he was a very urban writer. And the pre-Raphaelites 
have something in common with the romantics that they idolize nature and natural living, which I just cannot bear. It is a canker on the European psyche that grows to this day. But at least in contrast to the romantics, the pre-Raphaelites saw that there was not just innocence in nature. Again, something we can see in Goblin Market. The pre-Raphaelite founders, including Dante Gabriel Rossetti, were infamous for their kind of lifestyle, a kind of already dandy-like presence. And sexuality plays a major role in the movement, often in a kind of religious way, the passion of religious experience, very close to sexual passion, sexual numinousness. But yeah, I think they are more interesting than their very superficial art purports to be. But for example, when we hear how the two sisters in Goblin Market, Lizzie and Laura, how they spent their days, they open the windows to air out the house and then they clean and they do all the work and then in the evening go, they go to the babbling brook to get water and it's all so nice and lovely. Now just imagine a farm laborer or a coal miner or a tin miner in Cornwall reading that and thinking, hey, that's not what my life is like, mate. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a definitely idolized version, an artificial version. It is a fairy tale setting and it's not just due to the presence of goblins, literal goblins that appear just very nonchalantly in the poem. This whole thing has nothing to do with real life. You could almost read it as an allegory for certain things. Certainly it has a fairy tale vibe to it. Also these two children maybe even, it's ambiguous how old they are. They seem to be quite young, quite Definitely. innocent, but they apparently live on their own in the woods and there's goblins around and everyone just sort of accepts that. Oh yeah, but let these goblins turn up. Don't don't talk to them. But there's no parents. It's a fairy tale like setting that like in Snow White and Red Rose, for example, two sisters living in the woods, magical creatures appear. Though here they are even more threatening. One last word on Dante Gabriel Rossetti. This is not an episode about him, it's about his sister. I don't want him to steal her thunder, but I found it very interesting that several times in the poem the goblins are described as wombat-like. And that is probably because Dante Gabriel Rossetti was obsessed with wombats. He often asked friends to meet him at the wombat lair in London Zoo. He had two pet wombats and he let them sleep in the center of the dinner table at the time. So he was just obsessed with these strange creatures. He also had a toucan, a bird, and a llama. And he dressed the toucan up as a cowboy and let him ride the llama around the dinner table. That is just amazing. And if my brother had such crazy pets, I would put them in my poetry as well. Well, wombats are amazing creatures. Yeah, they have square-shaped poop. And they kill each other in their tunnels. Now you ruined it! <laughs> but let's go beyond the kind of setting. What is Goblin Market really about? On the surface, it is, as we said, a narrative poem about two sisters who encounter these goblins and their strange fruits they offer to them. One of them, Laura, tastes the fruit and becomes obsessed with it because it tastes so good. But the goblins never show up for her again. And she pines for it. She grows sick and is almost about to die. But her sister, Lizzie, finally finds the courage to encounter the goblins again, to talk to them but not eat the fruit, but at least get some of its juice back 
to Laura, who is then miraculously cured by the Jews, and they basically live happily ever after. Still, that's only the story. What is this poem about? Jonas, why don't you tell me? Well, it could be about a lot of things. A lot of people interpret it in a sexual way and say that it is about incestuous lesbian love. Oh my. I think by now, actually, this seemingly very daring interpretation is the mainstream one. When you hear a professor mention Goblin Market in a lecture, he will say, oh, it's very erotic, very erotic imagery, uh, uh, kind of one of the first lesbian uh, poems in English literature. Though there were ones before that. But there's also other interpretations. There's a very religious aspect to it. Of course, this narrative of temptation, temptation by fruit, and then succumbing to it. Though here it is redeemed, and Lizzie tells her sister Laura that she should eat her, drink her, love her, which is reminiscent of Jesus Christ, whose flesh is symbolically, or not symbolically, depending on your variation of Christianity, <laughs> Uh, whose flesh is eaten, whose blood is drunk, and who is loved, by Christians at least. There's also the interpretation that it's generally about temptation, maybe not in a very explicitly religious sense, that it's about women who succumb to temptation, so-called fallen women, who were in very dire situations in the Victorian era, and who Rossetti actually worked with. She worked in a charitable organization that provided a home for women who had been abused or who had been prostitutes, called fallen women at the time. But also, maybe it's just a story for kids to tell them, beware, be careful, don't stray from the path. Uh, like Little Red Riding Hood, who strays from the path and she's eaten by a wolf. Laura strays from the path and she's seduced by the goblins and she pines for them ever after. Or maybe it is actually about sex in a different way, not this lesbian way that many people interpret it. Maybe it's about male sexuality intruding on this blissful couple of sisters and the men seduce one of the sisters and then try to seduce the other sister but she remains strong against them and therefore she can save her other sister. There's certainly very sexual imagery in the way that the goblins tempt the two sisters. I think what is definitely central to the poem and many of these readings is the role of femininity. That the main characters are two sisters, two female characters. Now, the goblins are definitely men. They're called goblin men. Yeah. And you might consider their advances or their role to be a kind of portrayal of male sexuality in Victorian times, where at the time prostitution was definitely a social problem that was only slowly beginning to be seen as one. But even apart from this contextual reading, it's really interesting that Rossetti chooses two female characters as the kind of heroines for her narrative poem. Usually this kind of epic poetry, this romance, is more reserved for male heroes, the knights that go out and fight dragons or other monstrous creatures to save women. And here, in contrast, we have a female character, Lizzie, saving her sister, Laura. So Lizzie is a heroic character. She's basically the knight in shining armor in this example. And I find this very interesting, that it seems to be a kind of reappropriation of the ballad, the romance, this kind of going out on a quest, saving someone, but with another gender in the center. 
It's not about men as agents. The acting characters, both Laura and Lizzie, are female. And men don't play a role apart from these nondescript goblins. And they are also not only maybe male, but they're definitely animals. They are described, as you said, as wombat-like creatures, rat-like creatures. They are more animal than human. Initially, they actually sounded kind of cute. You know, one looks a bit like a rat, one looks like a cat. And since I'm a cat person, I love that, of course. One reminds her of a, of a wombat sort of tumbling about and being all cute and awkward. But they're definitely coded male. And then when Lizzie actually tries to purchase fruit from them with a mere coin rather than with a lock of her hair, and when she actually says that she doesn't want to eat the fruit with them but wants to take it home to her sister, they get very angry and suddenly it turns very, very dark. And uh, she writes, Their looks were evil, lashing their tails. They trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her, clawed with their nails, held her hands and squeezed their fruits against her mouth to make her eat. That is just so reminiscent of horrible scenes of sexual abuse. And maybe it's just because I'm in this mindset, because every fucking thing we read for this podcast has something to do with sexual abuse. What is it with great literature and horrible, horrible gender relations where people are forced against their will to engage in sexual conduct? Seriously, people, that is fucked up. Your point. I don't even know if I had a point. I just wanted to get angry because... So these goblins initially appear sort of harmless, kind of fun, but there is a very dark side to them. This dark side you already mentioned that distinguishes the pre-Raphaelites from the Romantics, that is present in this scene where the goblins turn evil and start mistreating Lizzie and pushing their fruit in her face, literally. And that is quite scary, so... Yeah, maybe it isn't for kids. What I also found interesting, I read this online, is that they often describe these goblins as just one. So one is in a certain way, one does a certain thing, one looks like a certain thing. They are quite varied in their appearances and what they do. But at the same time, as you mentioned, this very violent scene with Lizzie, they act as one unified entity, you might say. So it's an interesting contrast. They are very disparate on the one hand, but on the other hand, these different goblins don't have personalities. They don't have characters. They're a mob. Exactly. And I find it very interesting whether you read this as sexual abuse or sexual power play, which is certainly quite obviously an interpretation, or whether you just read this as a contrast between the quite clearly defined human characters and the goblins, these supernatural creatures who aren't personalities in any way. What I found very interesting as well is I read that some people interpret Laura's reaction to the goblin's fruit and how she pines for it afterwards as reminiscent of addiction and drug use. That is definitely something that came to mind for me. Um, I used to work uh, for a brief time in an uh, addiction clinic and what I heard from people there was, was horrible and very reminiscent of this. Laura has eaten from the goblins' fruit and she can never go back there. She doesn't hear the goblins anymore. Once you've eaten from their fruit, they're vanished for you. You can never get back to this blissful state of ecstasy. It's rather like uh, I'm told when you first take heroin, it's brilliant. It's the best feeling you've ever had. And it's never that good afterwards. It's always tarnished by withdrawal and you just want to get back to that first experience and you never can. 
and the effect it has on her is so devastating. And that's a large portion of the poem. Of course, the goblins with all their fruits and all the linguistic acrobatics that Rossetti does are one of the most memorable parts of the poem. But a long passage of it is all about this withdrawal, all about this pining, and how Laura tries to get some of that fruit by raising one of the seeds she took, and it doesn't work. This is very gruesome. Maybe that was the scariest part, or certainly the darkest part of the poem for me. Not even the explicit violence from the goblins, but this seething suffering. That is definitely the part that struck me most and resonated with me most as well. Because you had just been to Amsterdam, so addiction is on your mind. Obviously. You can certainly read it as a metaphor for addiction or a metaphor for sexuality even. Sexuality not just in a negative way, but the kind of sensual pleasure of it all. And then it doesn't feel the same way. But I think for me, the most central and most touching part was exactly this feeling of it's not the same anymore. And whether you connect that to sex or drugs or just experiences in general, that is something that everyone can relate to. I want to read a brief piece where Lizzie and Laura, when they're working together, are compared. Lizzie with an open heart, Laura in an absent dream, one content, one sick in part, one warbling for the mere bright day's delight, one longing for the night. That contrast with Lizzie being content with what she has and Laura knowing that there is something else, something more, something better, and she wants it, but she can't have it. That for me really, really struck a chord. This feeling of there was something that was amazing, an experience that you only you could feel and no one could share or even acknowledge, and it's gone. You can't have it anymore. That devastation, that despair is very human. And that makes Laura also more relatable than just being the kind of fallen woman or the, the drug victim or something like that, the weaker one. Laura is just as understandable and valid and human as Lizzie is. I think what I really like about the poem is exactly for a lyrical piece, these characters, despite their allegorical nature, these kind of counterparts, one stands for one thing, one stands for another, they appear to be really, really human. They could be people you know, they could be you. I know that speculating on an author's motives is kind of pointless, but I wonder, with this contrast between Laura and Lizzie, where Laura pines for something more that she has once known, and Lizzie is content with what she has, I don't think that for Rossetti, either one of those positions is good. Rossetti was not a meek little Victorian woman who just, oh, she was just glad to join in with some of her lovely poetry, and then, oh, her brother painted some pictures for it, that's just lovely. No, that's not what she was like. She was a proto-feminist woman. She was a woman who, as we said, she worked with other women who were in bad social situations. She was interested in women's rights. I think... She really has an understanding for Laura's predicament. She really knows what it's like to want more. And that is also very rare that you find literature that is not judgmental like that. Most literature about, uh, for example, drug use or sexuality either celebrates it completely or condemns it and judges people. And this middle ground of acknowledging that it is tempting but also destructive, that is rare. 
Definitely. And this kind of happy ending with the moral that Laura gives, actually, in the end. It's interesting that it's not Lizzie who kind of summarizes what the important thing is and how you can be saved from temptation. It's actually Laura who says, yeah, the most important thing is sisterly love. And I think that is something that covers this middle ground. No matter whether you're in a bad situation, whether you've been tempted or whether you stay on the path and stay civilized, but maybe also boring. The most important thing is that you can connect to others and that love, whether it's family love or maybe even incestuous lesbian love or whatever, that that is most important, more important than any kind of moral judgment. Though I found the end was cheapened a bit by the fact that it said, oh, and then when they were married and they had children, and I thought, oh, bullshit. No, this... Why did you destroy my incestuous lesbian romance? <laughs> it's interesting, though, that, uh, again, the, the husbands don't play a role. Yeah, true. They don't appear. The, the children implicitly appear, but they never speak. And the children mean that now they both had sex. So if this is about sex, sex in marriage, apparently, is an entirely different thing than the temptation of the goblin fruit. And it's entirely okay. And it's no big deal. And it doesn't traumatize <laughs> you as much. So, yeah, because, because there was no pleasure, of course, you know, because her, her husband baby maybe lay on top of her, grunted, and it was done, and she was pregnant. Just lie back and think of England. <laughs> but on the other hand, you can say, again, the husbands don't play a role. So in the end, this is a very female-centric poem, even to the end, even to the kind of maybe cheap and cheesy happy ending. So at least there, there is some coherence. I want to talk briefly about the language that she uses as well. Uh, as you could tell... In our introductory quote, she uses a lot of repeating rhymes, rhyming berries and berries and berries. Though also in the first stanza, she ends a line on oranges. <laughs> uh, Christina, you sort of backed yourself into a corner there. Uh, but it's very interesting how modern this poem is. You might think, oh, oh, this is a Victorian poem, all about virtue and staying on the true path probably is written in a very, very conventional style, oh, but it is not. Not at all. Actually, I think the style is the part where I have most issues with the poem. Because I have nothing against the modern style, against rhymes that don't exist. But Rossetti treats rhymes as you might treat chocolate sprinkles. It's nice to have them on something, but they're not really necessary. And for me, that is a kind of yeah, half-ass way to deal with it. Either you stick to a certain structure and do something with it, or you just say, fuck you, structure, and leave it behind. And to a certain degree, she does say that, but the rhymes do appear, and often in a very clumsy way. And what I found even more egregious was maybe her mixed metaphors, or not mixed metaphors, but her metaphors are kind of strange. She compares the two girls to certain things, but the images she uses are from entirely different fields of context. So what? She has fun with language, you know? For example, when she talks about the goblins when Lizzie meets them, uh, she writes there, flying, running, leaping, puffing and blowing, chuckling, clapping, crowing, clucking and gobbling, mopping and mowing, full of airs and graces, pulling wry faces. It's a bit... It's, it's almost like the Jabberwocky or some nonsense poem, you know? Definitely. The sounds are very important. And that might point back at the fact that maybe this is a poem for, for children. Definitely. Sound is very important. More important than kind of 
coherence when it comes to imagery. But even that sometimes works out quite nicely. For example, when hearing the goblins, Laura is described like this, like a rush embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. On the one hand, that doesn't work at all. Why is she a swan and a lily and a branch and a vessel? That's too many different images for me to actually work. But on the other hand, that last line, when its last restraint is gone, is so beautiful and so fitting that you can just say, yeah, thanks, Christina. That I know exactly what you mean now, even if it took you a while, a very confusing while to actually get there. I think mixed metaphors get a bad rep. People say they're not very good style, but when you call them catechesis and get all fancy about it, suddenly they're great. And for example, in probably the most canonical, greatest work in English literature, Hamlet, in the greatest speech in that play, the to be or not to be speech, it's full of mixed metaphors. You know, you take up arms against a sea of troubles. Yeah, if you take up arms against a sea, you're, you're not going to have a lot of luck, mate. So I think mixed metaphors, they're just part of the course and they enrich language, they enrich imagery. And as you said, I know what she's talking about. It's not confusing, it's not boring and distancing. It tells me something about the experience of these characters. So I don't mind that. I think still, together with the kind of haphazard approach to rhymes and meter, it smacks of a certain disregard for form, um, which is, of course, interesting, especially at that time. But yeah, maybe you're right. It is less about form. It is more about what to express with that form, about sounds, maybe, about the effect these sounds have, about the kind of story that is being told. So, I don't know, I still have my problems with it, but I can at least see your point of view. And as I said, there are some points in the poem where it really doesn't matter and it feels very, very effective. So I would say that you, our listeners, should definitely read Goblin Market. It's a great poem, it's very evocative, it will take you on an emotional journey, it will devastate you to a certain extent, but it will enrich you as well. I'm not so sure. I think Goblin Market is definitely a great poem. I really liked reading it. And I think it is also very, very interesting because of its outlier status. It's like nothing else from that period. Even other kind of pre-Raphaelite poetry was not as passionate or, or as wild as Goblin Market is. It kind of takes you away in this stream of words. On the other hand, this also means that it's not very representative of this time. The Victorian period has many different approaches to poetry. And I think you can find many other poems that go in a similar direction or do similar things, whether it's the Romantics or the Symbolists or later the Decadents or even good old Wordy Wordsworth. Good old Wordy Wordsworth. <laughs> that, 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 that is a new name for him. I will never refer to him otherwise. Where you can find similar things that are maybe more indicative of the period, that tell you more about how Victorian poets kind of seem to balance between passion and adhering to formal values more than Goblin Market does. So the problem you have with the poem is that it's ahead of its time and original. Basically, yes. Uh, I, I, I will let that stand. No, I, what I wanted to say is 
that Goblin Market is definitely a good poem. I don't know whether it's something that you should have read to understand Victorian poetry. It's a strange thing and I like it for its strangeness. But maybe there are other poems that do the same different things to a certain degree better. So you think that our listeners want to read great literature to know about literary history and learn uh, archetypal examples, whereas I think they just want to read it because it's awesome. Well, I'm a literary scholar after all, so... Oh, wait, I'm supposed to be that as well, aren't I? Shit. Maybe, I think in this case, I'm taking the bad position and I feel bad for it, but I think it has to be taken. So people listen to Jonas, not to me. <laughs> but since you think Goblin Market is shit and nobody should ever read it, hey. what else would you recommend? Actually, the piece I want to recommend is not a poem, but it's also not a novel. It's a theater play, namely The Scriker by Carol Churchill. It's a postmodern play, but it takes up the same kind of fairy setting that Goblin Market uses. It's also about two female characters and their experience with this horrifying and strange goblin fairy world. What I find interesting about it is that it takes up the same focus on femininity as Goblin Market does, only modernized. So there are questions about pregnancy, about abortion. It also takes up the same focus on language, the kind of nonsensical sound-based sentences that you can find in Goblin Market are perfected in the Skryker. And what is interesting is that the Goblin character, the titular Skryker, appears in many different guises, but also appears for the most part as a woman. So even the goblins in this piece have been turned female. And that makes the interaction between the characters very interesting. Reading this poem, which is all about, you know, discovering sexuality, but also sibling relationships. And one of the siblings sort of being abducted by goblins. It, it reminded me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Well, well, actually, Rossetti reminds me of the babe. Ah. So my recommendation is the great 1986 film Labyrinth, starring a young Jennifer Connelly, David Bowie, David Bowie's crotch. And it's just brilliant, you know? And it is very similar to the poem in a lot of ways. It is, nominally at least, kind of a kid's film. But then you think, well, firstly, with the costume choices made for Bowie and all these themes of discovering sexuality, is it actually for children? And I would say, yes, it is for children exactly in that age where they're dealing with all these questions. But also the way that the goblins are portrayed in that film, of course, made by the Jim Henson Workshop, who do extraordinary work consistently. That reminded me very much of the way I saw the goblins in this poem. They're kind of cute, but also kind of repugnant. So just... Put in a DVD. If you don't have it on DVD, shame on you. Shame on me, actually, because I don't have it. Watch uh, Labyrinth, uh, because it, it's it's just awesome. There is, I think, a whole strand of fairy-related literature and films. Many things by Neil Gaiman, Susanna Clarke's novel, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. They have this whole strand where this fairy tale setting is treated very ambiguously, but also very maturely. And 
That is something that we don't have in German culture. We sort of talked about that already with a Midsummer Night's Dream, where I felt that the mythology was sort of underexplored. And that was really intriguing here. Here, Rosetti really hits the right balance of setting up a kind of mythology and not over-explaining it. So, for example, Laura pays for the fruit with a lock of her hair, but it's never said, oh, and then they use it in this particular ritual or they do spells with it or something. I don't care. I just think, oh, apparently her hair is kind of magic, maybe? Okay, we know that there is this spell and that she cannot hear them anymore, and it's never explicitly laid out, but it's explored enough to keep my interest. So, in this case, Rossetti is better than Shakespeare. Wow, big words. So, this is our take on Goblin Market, a poem for a change. Is it going to be a poem next time as well, Jonas? Well, actually, the next episode is coming out on the weekend of my birthday, so I think that I have a wish, don't I? Well, okay. And I can make you read something that you maybe will not like, so hopefully we can violently disagree over it. What is it? Well, I was inspired by this line in Goblin Market. Dear, you should not stay so late. Twilight is not good for maidens. Oh, no. So for the next episode, oh, no. I want us oh, to read no. Stephanie Meyer's oh, no. Twilight. Please, no. Happy birthday to me. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Michael Foucault is spinning in his grave right now. Michael? <laughs> Michel Foucault is spinning in his grave right now. And you will use that version and you will not humiliate me by actually broadcasting the fact that I mispronounced the first name of a great philosopher. Definitely not. <laughs>